Kia ora. you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. So Fifty Shades, I'm not sure if you've read it. I De- haven't. Oh, not the best written piece of erotic fiction I've ever seen. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. So pornography is, I think it's the rules of the internet, rule 34. If there is no pornography yet, it will be made. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena, and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James is in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps, and makes sure you don't miss any good bits, or who laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats... You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we're joined by Dr. Samantha Keane to discuss her thesis, Pleasure, Pain and Pornography, a gendered analysis of the influence of contemporary pornography on the lives of New Zealand emerging adults. Dr. Keane is a critical feminist scholar, sex academic, lecturer in criminology at Terangawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, and a researcher on gender, crime, adult pornography and harm. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding, so we start the corridor off with James and Dr. Keane talking about why she chose to do this particular PhD. But before we do that, I thought I'd give everyone a trigger warning for this episode. Content in this episode includes mentions of rape, sexual violence, and rough sex. I guess a good place to start is maybe, can you tell us really quickly how and why you ended up writing this PhD uh, specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'd always had an interest uh, during my university studies uh, in gendered analyses of crime. I'd had a background in doing research in sexual violence, so I had conducted research around student sexual victimisation in university halls. Uh, And leading on from that, um, my supervisor, who went on to complete a a full project related to rape, silencing and objectification, uh, when we did uh, some scoping work together around what that project could look like, I just found myself constantly having conversations uh, uh, with my friends about pornography and how they understood pornography to have affected their lives. And never in my life did I imagine that pornography would be this, you know, (laughs) the academic study I'd be embarking on. Uh, But throughout those conversations, I started to realise that pornography was very much something that was ever present in many people's lives. And people's relationships with pornography changed depending on, say, for example, their relationship context or their own personal engagements or feelings about pornography. So that sort of led me to think, well, why haven't we done much research on pornography? Why is it something that simultaneously is so present? 
but in many ways is still really silent and still very taboo. So that sort of led me to the project that I ended up doing my PhD on. Mm, mm. I think that's sort of key to your your research and the area of focus, I guess, and that is stigma, right, as a concept and how it applies to you doing a PhD in an area where people might not think to look a little further. And I I think this whole discussion has to be viewed and sort of registered through a lens of stigma and the gendered nature of pornography seems pretty clear and, and present in your research. And, you know, we're talking about these concepts openly today, but most people in terms of age or sexual orientation or gender or ethnicity, a lot of people aren't talking about these kinds of things. And maybe that's something to, to consider throughout this whole discussion as we go on uh, through diving into your research. But what we want to start with is definitions, because it's something that's I guess a part of everyone's PhD is, you know, technical terms and jargon specific to the the area of focus. Uh, and it seems particularly appropriate to your PhD because definitions and sometimes the difficult process of defining things is kind of inherent in what you're looking at. There's some concepts in your work that society has, I'd suggest, a slightly more solid understanding of how to define. And there's some concepts that are a lot harder defined by their nature. And in some cases, as your research has suggested, there are there are words and concepts that have yet to be defined by even the experts in the field. But maybe a good place to start is your definitions of pleasure and pain and how they relate specifically to the research of your PhD. Pleasure or pain, or better yet, how we define those things, are integral to the scope of this PhD. So great question from James. Firstly, it's important to note that this PhD was built on interviews with young men and women who primarily identified as heterosexual about their understanding of porn within and around their lives. To Dr. Keane, pleasure and pain is something we all define differently. So I think it's important to recognise that my definitions, for example, of pleasure and pain may well be very different to, say, you sitting across from me, from the person I walk past in the street, through to people that... I have in my friend group, people in my family. Viewing pornography can be a really helpful and healthy way to explore sexual pleasure, both on an individual level through masturbation or in conjunction with a partner. However, we must understand that our experience with pornography is not universal. And on the flip side of viewing pornography as a healthy and helpful tool, it can also incite bad feelings for some. It could be associated with victimization or they may have just had a troubled relationship with it. Now to take a step back, and you might want to take notes for this one, pornography does not always demonstrate the types of sex we engage in offline. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. Pornography does not always demonstrate the types of sex we engage in offline. It's often scripted, and through our research she found that porn sex was described as superficial and artificial. It doesn't necessarily depict the type of sex people find pleasurable, but it still does find a way to creep into our offline experiences. Now personally, I don't really get a whole lighting and camera crew ready for when I engage in sex. But hey, DIY porn does also exist. It is, after all, in our DNA. Dr. Keen did, however, acknowledge that there are people engaging in this type of sex shown in porn. At the same time, though, a lot of people may and are 
engaging in the type of sex that you may see in pornography as well. So I'm not sure it's always helpful to consider porn sex and real sex as distinct, but seeing that those relationships between them can be fluid. So what is depicted in porn can be depicted or experienced in our offline lives, but at the same time may be completely different depending on the person we're having sex with um, or how we understand our sexual lives at a particular point in time. Now moving to one of the more important definitions that deserves your attention, consent. It's so central to every facet of sex and pornography that it's best heard in Dr. Keane's own words. So when I think about consent, consent in relation, well, consent is in everything that we do, right? You've asked me to come and be part of an interview today. I've consented to doing that, right? Thank you very much. We appreciate and, it. <laughs> well, thanks, right? So consent is not, um, it, it's not just in relation to sex. But in relation to sex, it's perhaps more critical in some ways, given the harms that can come from not establishing consent in sexual interaction. But consent for me comes from a, a place where we're recognising that someone is giving consent freely to engaging in sex, that that consent recognises that pleasure is part of that sexual process, uh, and that that person is freely, enthusiastically wanting to engage in sexual interactions. In relation to pornography, things can get a bit more tricky, right? So when we think about pornography in and of itself, often a lot of pornography doesn't display what we would understand explicit consent to look like. So pornography isn't usually depicted to show negotiations around sex that we know do happen when we are having sex, say for example, offline. But in the context of pornography, consent is almost implicit. Right, So we consider the consent of performers that we may be viewing and its existence online can allow people perhaps to think, oh, obviously this was consensually produced. We know that that's not always the case. So certainly there are issues around non-consensual production of pornography, but also when it comes to consent and viewing pornography, we need to think about, okay, how am I ethically engaging with the pornography that I'm viewing? Can I ask questions about that? And how does my relationship with pornography relate to how I understand sex outside of the pornographic realm. So if pornography doesn't display explicit consent negotiations, are we just replicating that offline? How are we nav navigating consent in not only our sexual relationships, but in everything that we do? So it's not an easy thing to define, but enthusiastic, ongoing, affirmative, pleasurable consent. Those are really nice words. I think you're you're absolutely right when you speak to, and this is, a, I guess, a key word within your research, the scripted nature of, of pornography and how perhaps we don't, uh, as consumers, think enough about the nature of what we're consuming. You know, maybe perhaps we place ourselves in the seat of being uh, a passive consumer rather than an active consumer. You know, I'm just watching what's going on. I wasn't involved in making it, but actually the social contract of what we're engaging with by watching it and considering how what we're watching has been put together as a key part of how we consider pornography. One last definition that I'd like to get into uh, before we sort of tackle the state of play and, and the nature of some of your work is maybe the crux of your research. And this is the concept of rough sex, which we know having read your PhD is really difficult to define. And again, I'm not 
putting you on the hot seat and asking you for you to define it for us. But before we dive into some of these concepts, uh, it might be helpful to give the audience a simple understanding of why rough sex is such a difficult concept. It's not cut and dry how we define it. Maybe if you could give us a quick version of why we haven't come to a consensus of the parameters of rough sex and why that is one of the key things that we need to be thinking about as we continue to research the sphere of sex and pornography and how we consume it. It's something that I'm continuing to, to work on now. But we seem to live in a world now where, you know, the world is saturated with depictions of sex, no matter where we look, right? So we have sexualized advertising, we see sex on mainstream telly, everyone's had an uncomfortable situation with their parents, where they've watched a sex scene at home, you know? <laughs> but at the same time, we're increasingly seeing discussions and representations and features of what we what has come to be essentially known as what is called rough sex. So it's not only being depicted in, say, for example, Netflix movies or men's and women's lifestyle magazines like Cosmopolitan and Men's Health. It's also a full genre uh, and category on contemporary pornography websites. And it's also becoming a key feature in criminal justice cases. So obviously the, the case of the man who murdered Grace Mullane is pretty central to Aotearoa. But this whole notion of engaging in rough sex has sort of emerged over the last 10 years, but we haven't really tied down what that means. So in the same way that how, for example, what I understand pornography to be, the person next to me will think, oh, that's a bit vanilla. I don't believe that's pornography, but this is what pornography is. The same can be said about rough sex. So people's understandings about rough sex are shaped from a multitude of different social forces. And we haven't really tackled what it is about rough sex that people enjoy. We haven't really understood about what people consider rough sex to be. And we haven't considered the implications for how we tackle that in sex and relationships education. So if people are wanting to engage in rough sex, how do they do that safely? So we've got an awful lot of work to do, never short of um, criminological work in that space. But also in terms of just thinking about what does rough sex mean to me, for example, and navigating that for each other. The last decade, and I guess the 21st century, seems to be at the core of this rough sex movement, right? Obviously, Fifty Shades of Grey was a big element. You mentioned cosmopolitan, men's health, those kind of different mediums, media, that are producing content for us to consume and suggesting that that content is maybe more normalised. Could you give us a quick state of play, I guess, of the last 10 or so years about how we have found ourselves in a place where the kind of content and media where rough sex is more apparent has maybe become more prominent? Over sort of the last 10 years, we can certainly see proliferation of sexualized imagery that fuses sex and aggression, right? So when we think about Fifty Shades, so Fifty Shades, I'm not sure if you've read it. I haven't. Oh, not the best written piece of erotic fiction I've ever seen, but certainly was sold as this, you know, this sort of new way of having sex that was very tantalising for people to read. And it brought conversations about, say, for example, what some people may consider poorly executed BDSM, uh, brought conversations about rougher, more adventurous, if you like, sexual practices to the forefront of public conversation. So 
we had that, and I don't want to say that Fifty Shades of Grey is the be-all and end-all for understanding rough sex, but it certainly opened a space for having conversations about that type of content. At the same time, outside of that, we've had, uh, obviously, a film reproduction of that. We've had the Netflix film 365 Days, which obviously fuses sex and aggression in a lot of ways and presents it in a very coercive relationship. Uh, the song S&M by Rihanna, so sticks and stones will break my bones but whips and chains excite me. Uh, so certainly seeing conversations and features of what people may consider rough sex to be occurring in those spaces. Simultaneously, uh, pornography is not the same as it was. I'm not sure you know, if you ever looked at, say, for example, a pornographic magazine in your younger years, uh, but the pages of Playboy are not the same as the pages of Pornhub. The pictorials, for example, the sealed sections, if you like, uh, in a Playboy magazine were largely depicting women in, in you know, various states of undress. And that was the pornography of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Today's pornography, though, the front page of Pornhub does not depict just women in seemingly various states of undress. So the pornography that we have access to now is obviously motion, so it's video, but in many ways there's been a lot of concern about the normalisation of aggression behavior, aggressive behaviours in contemporary mainstream pornography. So that's not to say that aggression is present in all of what's available, say, for example, on Pornhub, uh, but it certainly is present. So there's been research that sort of assessed uh, the content of pornography that demonstrates that aggressive behaviours such as choking, slapping, hitting are certainly present uh, in mainstream porn. That's not to say, again, all that mainstream porn is problematic, but we can certainly see those depictions. So there are some real concerns about if we are seeing that type of material becoming normalised, what does that mean for how we understand what sex should look like? So in, say, for example, the if you're a young person uh, and the front page of Pornhub was the first exposure you'd ever had to sex, that's quite different to initial exposure to the front pages of Playboy. That's also not necessarily a bad thing either. But if your exposure isn't coming with information and education about how to navigate that content, how to understand what you're seeing, and how to recognise the differences between what's happening in porn and what will likely happen, for example, perhaps in your first sexual experience, uh, then that can have a way of um, activating or giving information about how to develop your understanding about how sex could go and activating it when you have sex for the first time. So we certainly know that it's an important space to be working in because the fusion of sex and aggression in pornography for many adults may not be a problem. But if we're not equipped with the information to navigate that content, then that can certainly influence how we understand sex. Navigating the information is a really great way to frame it. And to return to the concept of stigma that we were speaking about, I think there's a clear delineation or a, a split between how the content that shows rough sex has become more voluminous has increased and yet the amount of discussion around that content hasn't increased in the same way so i would suggest that perhaps you know there's a greater proliferation of uh, films books pornographic material out there and yet 
the number of people talking about that hasn't matched the incline in the content. What I found in relation to stigma in particular was that young men found it really, really hard to talk about porn critically. So what came through was this idea that talking about porn, say, for example, with the lids might be fine. But talking about it in a critical way that may, for example, if they felt that they were having a problematic relationship with pornography, being able to be open about that was really, really difficult because there's a lot of stigma and shame still associated with engaging with pornography, despite the fact that so many people engage with pornography on a very regular basis. At the same time, some of the concerns that women raised that I spoke with related to you know, sort of worries about how wider societal sexual double standards about notions of acceptable femininity, for example, would affect if they were to be open about the pornography that they viewed, that they would be shamed for doing so. So we've always had the, you know, sexual double standard where women are considered to be safe, and I hate the word, uh, but seen, seen to be slutty if they have sex, whereas men are seen as studs, that same sort of lens women felt was a pressure for them in relation to pornography. And I think we can link that back to stigma and shame in a lot of ways, both for men and women. Rough sex, if people don't actually understand, you know, rough sex on the internet, I'm consuming it or other people consuming it, but don't quite realize the effect that it is having on their real lives and personal lives, whether they be single or in a relationship or otherwise. Could you, in layman's terms, I guess, as simplified as you can, speak to the effect that rough sex pornography is having on people? Yeah, well, lots to cover there, and I think it's really, really important to to know that we don't have research that shows a correlation between watching rough sex pornography or any pornography in particular, and you know engagement in those behaviours offline. But there are specific behaviours that do, that for me and in my perspective are present in a lot of contemporary pornography. So behaviours such as choking, for example. But what we are seeing is that. Uh, Research that's emerging from the United States suggests that choking is becoming quite a normal part of people's sexual experiences. So research with large undergraduate samples in the United States suggests that of women, and this is research done by a public health team led by Debbie Herbenick, suggests that one in three women uh, that they had uh, surveyed had experienced choking at their most recent instance of sex. So if that's the case, we need to think about where that has come from, right? So if choking is becoming a normative sexual experience for some people, where does that come from? Obviously, choking or non-fatal strangulation has always been a component of BDSM activity, but BDSM communities operate with strong consent protocols (laughs) as, as a general rule, right? They're great at establishing consent. In relation to choking becoming something more normal, something that people are experiencing. It can be experienced as scary, and it can also be something that people could find very pleasurable. But we've seen instances of this being a very dangerous act, and we certainly know that choking or non-fatal strangulation is one of the single biggest indicators of women's experiences of lethal violence in intimate relationships. So I think we can ask some real questions about the eroticization of a known indicator 
of intimate partner violence risk and lethality risk and have a think about, okay, why is this being depicted in sexual behaviours as a normative thing? And how can we construct conversations around consent about behaviours such as choking? Because if that's becoming a normal part of rough sex pornography, and granted not everybody will be watching rough sex pornography, but there is a lot of discussion about that in men's and women's lifestyle magazines that can encourage people to want to look. So we need to really be having structured conversations about, okay, what is pleasurable about this? How is this done safely? And most importantly, in a behavior like that, how is consent navigated? So how easy is it to withdraw consent if you were to be choked at that time and having your breathing impeded? And again, it comes to that point of it's hugely individualistic. And because there's so little research, although thankfully you're paving the way in, in some of the areas, it's hard to determine certainly causation or even correlation because it's so individual and people are different beings and they engage with pornography completely differently. And maybe I would suggest, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, that some people engage with pornography in a way that they consume what reflects what they're interested in, quote unquote, real life. Whereas some people may engage with pornographic genre that are considered fantasy or outside of what someone might consume acceptable within the real world or something that they may not engage with. And that makes it really difficult because the way that people are engaging with material is so dependent on their specific psychology and, and their personal experience and that makes it really difficult to determine does the content affect people across the board in the same way because people are, are consuming pornography for completely different reasons of course right and both of those situations can be relevant for the same person so they may well watch pornography that reflects what they want to engage in offline but they may also watch pornography that is completely within the realm of fantasy that they have no interest in trying and both of those things are completely okay but we do need to think about when we engage with content and particularly if it is, say, for example, rougher in nature, how do we navigate if we are wanting to try those things in our sexual lives? How do we do so in a way that recognizes that consent is the, the sort of the crux of what we're doing and how to do that safely and actually how to have a conversation with your partner about those boundaries. So it's so critically important. You know, often I find in research in this space, it suggests that, you know, people engage in these behaviors and it just happens. But you actually need to have very firm boundaries set at the start, but also to recognize that consent is ongoing throughout any interaction that we do, especially in rougher sexual behaviors. So having a think about how you have a conversation with your sexual partner about what that looks like going forward. For people that don't have a sexual partner at the time, I'll dub them single, for those people who might be listening to this and want to consider how they're framing consent within meeting new people, do you have any suggestions or any any thoughts? I know that's a complex question. That is a really complex question, and I think it comes down to the fact that we as a society are often really still quite quiet about talking openly about sex. Many people would find this very unusual that you and I are sitting here in a recording studio talking about sex and porn, right, as men and women. And I think it's really, really important to just actually ask yourself what is important to you, what are your sexual values, what are your sexual ethics, what is important to you in a sexual relationship, 
What are your boundaries? Are you comfortable expressing that with someone that you meet? Obviously, you may not want to express that on the first time if you're not intending on on having sex with that person on a first date and totally okay if you are. Really trying to assert within yourself, finding what's important to you sexually. So we can ask about our sexual values in relation to the pornography that we watch, in relation to what we understand pleasure to be, in relation to what's important to us in a sexual relationship, what's important in a relationship that may not have sex at the time that we're starting a relationship, for example. So asking about our own values and working out essentially like a code of care, if you like, for another human being, but also for ourselves. And that crosses over to if you begin a more long-term relationship with someone if you've been in a relationship with someone for an extended period of time uh i would suggest that that doesn't you know people don't stop watching pornography just because they have uh, a partner and you know it can be years down the line of a relationship and sometimes people have never talked about their pornography consumption and you can be engaging with that and not have talked to your partner about it at all and that is equally valuable to compare to people who say are single and meeting people for the first time because you know it's important to have these conversations even if you think you're in a a relationship where you share everything because I know for a fact there are people that have been in long-term relationships that still don't feel comfortable talking about the pornography that they consume and we need to normalize that as much as people who uh, aren't in relationships and I think a good comparison for pornography is social media and follow me as I as I go down the rabbit hole and that we kind of know that pornography and sexual media isn't really going anywhere it's it's there's so much of it out there it seems like there's only becoming more and more of that content available and something that I found about social media in the last few years is that there have been more people asking questions about the nature of it is it problematic it's here to stay so how do we process it and deal with it If we could apply that lens to pornography in a similar way and say, hey, pornographic material has been here for years and years and years and years, it's probably here to stay. Perhaps it's not that valuable to think of it as something that might magically disappear overnight. Mm. We actually just need to have more conversations and communicate more about it because it's probably not going anywhere, right? Uh, So pornography is, uh, I think it's the rules of the internet, rule 34, If there is no pornography yet, it will be made, Uh, essentially, right? So when we think about that, pornography isn't going anywhere. And people will have differing relationships and understandings and expectations about what's okay in relation to pornography. And having conversations about that is really, really important. So pornography can be a really important aspect of a healthy functioning sexual relationship or a sex life for some people it can be you know the the main thing that they engage with but at the same time we can we can really have open conversations if we actually just start doing it if you're happy to answer one thing that i'm really curious to ask you about is how has it changed your personal consumption of pornography yeah, for sure. So uh, it took me three three and a little bit years to do my PhD, and I've obviously been working in the field of uh, pornography, gender and crime, rough sexual relationships, sexual violence ever since. For me, it's a, I sort of contextualise it by saying I don't really find anything hot in porn at the moment, uh, mainly because it feels like work. 
I'm not sure whether that will change and it may well do. But recognising that people's experiences with pornography are fluid. They change at different times. At the moment in the crux of turning this PhD into a book, which I'm doing, the thought of watching porn for leisure just feels like extra work. (laughs) That may well change when it's finished, so we'll see where things go. Um, But actually being able to say that is quite different, right? So a lot of people feel like saying that at the moment I don't find porn hot, you're worried you'll be labelled a prude. Actually, that's not true because you don't have to have a particular way of feeling about porn. Everything to you is individual. Even though we live in a world where many, many people engage with pornography regularly, a lot of people don't engage with it at all. And to recognise that that can be a healthy place for that person to be in is so totally important too. Just as Sam illustrated before, conversations about porn would be very beneficial for the sex lives and experiences of every person. Now, as someone who went to an all-girls Catholic school, I can tell you for a fact that porn and sex weren't topics of conversation amongst my friends. Since leaving school and hopefully maturing a little, I can guarantee that we would have all been better off having these types of conversations. Ignoring the elephant in the room does nothing but hurt us. One thing we'll do towards the end of every episode is ask each author, where is the hope? Now we're aware that the lines between real sex and pornographic sex have blurred our understandings of pleasure and pain, what can we look forward to? Well, we asked Sam and this is what she had to say. It's been two years since I finished my PhD and in that time we have had a massive campaign in New Zealand called Keep It Real Online where we had two porn stars turn up on a doorstep uh, with a comedian open the door and say, we're here to talk to your son. Great ad. (laughs) Fantastic, right? And that screened during the middle of the six o'clock news. What power comes with that? for having conversations about sex and about pornography and about being safe online. It's not just for young people either. So we can have conversations about anything from romance scams through to pornography, but we really need to just have something that breaks through the ice and is going to be open about that. And I think that was a fantastic platform for saying, actually, this is okay to talk to kids about. Uh, And it's not going to force them to all go and have sex or, or watch porn or anything like that. It's about acknowledging that actually porn and sex is a critical part of many people's lives. Last thing we want to ask you before we let you go, is there one question that you don't get asked enough about your research? Maybe I haven't touched on it today. Maybe there's an element of it that you just think no one ever, page 263 is a real good one and no one ever reads it. Maybe maybe there isn't, but is there some element that never quite get asked about or you think is a really valuable tidbit that you want to mention maybe before we finish? One of the, the sort of take-home messages, I think, is to really recognise that pornography experience is subjective. Uh, and it's really gendered. So we don't have to compare ourselves to other people. We don't have to compare our relationships or how we understand pornography in a relationship that we may be in to other people. Uh, And recognizing that having a changing relationship with pornography is totally okay and totally normal. And we really do need to have more conversations about pornography, sex, relationships, pleasure, as well as recognizing the potential for harm. In case you missed that, the take-home message of the day is to remember that the pornography experience is subjective and very gendered. Don't feel as if you need to compare your relationships or your relationship to pornography to other people. A big thank you to Dr. Keane for coming on to PhD Unpacked. 
and having a chat with James. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Dr. Keane's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Chris Bowden about his PhD, Silence After Suicide, a phenomenological study of young men's experiences of losing a close male friend. So kind of these messages that we have out in the community that, you know, it's okay to talk and everyone should break the silence and, you know, this stigma around suicide, those are all good messages, but there are some other messages out there too that we need to get across, which is, you know, create some space and give men some opportunities to reflect and be quiet. Uh, sometimes men will talk when there's a bit of quiet. A truly important corridor. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. And before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Hope you enjoyed listening to this ASMR. Ma te wa.